2: And welcome back to the Exxon, everyone. My name is Rob McConnell, and we're coming to you from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Worldwide toll-free, 1-800-610-7035. Email exxon at com On MSN Messenger, TV at hotmail.com. And our website, com. My guest this hour is Joseph Scott Morgan. He's the author of Blood Beneath My Feet. Journey, um, let's see. Journey by a Southern Death Investigator, and we're going to be talking to uh, to uh, to Joseph about the real CSI. You know, we've all seen them on TV, uh, the different CSIs, and uh, how true to life. Is the is CSI compared to what really happens in a law enforcement agency? Uh, Joseph is a retired medical 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 legal death investigator. And uh, he was also the senior investigator for a Fulton County medical examiner's officer in Atlanta and a forensic investigator with the Jefferson Parish Coroner's Office in New Orleans conducted more than 7000 autopsies. He holds a master's degree in forensic science and is now assistant professor of criminal justice and forensics at North Georgia College and State University. His new memoir is Blood Beneath My Feet, The Journey of a Southern Death Investigator. And uh, Joseph, welcome to the x Hey,
3: Rob. Great to be here. Great to be in the x with you. Hey, Thanks le- for having me.
2: You know, what is a medical legal investigator and how is he or she different from than a coroner?
4: Yeah,
3: well, you know, uh, you can work for a coroner's office and, and certainly be a medical legal death investigator. I started my career with the coroner in the coroner system in mm-hmm. Louisiana. In Georgia, uh, we we had a bifurcated system where it was uh, a mixture of both a medical examiner system and a coroner system. And it gets kind of convoluted. The big mm-hmm. delineation, though, is between the medical legal community and that of law enforcement, if you think of a homicide detective, uh, the homicide detective essentially has one goal, and that goal is to uh, determine, first off, if there's a homicide committed, and if there is, to catch the person that did it. Mm-hmm. As a medical legal death investigator, our, our reach and our interest goes far beyond just something uh, as passe as catching bad guys because every kind of death that's out there, suicide, homicide, accidental death, you know, industrial accidents, motor vehicle accidents, um, unexplained natural deaths, uh, you know, recovered bodies, skeletal remains, all of that falls under our purview. We have interest in all of it, but we have really no interest in catching bad guys. Uh, We want to find out, first off, uh, what happened to the individual, what brought them to their end, Mm -hmm. and, and secondly, who they are. And um, and that, that's the sum total of what we do. And as a medical legal death investigator, contrary to what you see on television where they have some hot-looking blonde or uh, brunette yeah. <laughs> that goes out into the field that claims to be a forensic pathologist, mm-hmm. um, uh, that doesn't happen. We're actually the eyes and the ears of the forensic pathologist in the field. Uh, we go out and bring in data for them and the information for them. And then mm-hmm. uh, in addition to that, contrary to what you see on television, it's generally somebody like me uh, in a large metropolitan area that's going to show up at your door and notify you of, uh, of, of a death in your family. I think over the course of, of my career, I, I probably made upwards of, I don't know, uh, 2,000 uh, notifications oh, wow. in person. And so that's that's another part of of, of the job. And then, in addition to that, as you previously mentioned, um, the seven thousand autopsies. I'm also a pathology assistant, so I did that on the side and assisted with autopsy. So it's it's a you wear kind of a lot of hats. Uh, you have to be you know a sort of a jack of all trades, master of none and have an understanding as to the form and function of the practice of forensic science as it relates to death investigation. All right,
2: Joseph, stand by. Good sir, you and I have to take a two-minute commercial break. We'll be right back. Exonation. Joseph Scott Morgan is my special guest. He's the author of Blood Beneath My Feet, The Journey of a Southern Death Investigator. His website, www.josephscottmorgan.com. And uh, Joseph and I return on the other side of this two-minute commercial break. As the Exxon continues from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. My name's Rob McConnell. Don't go
0: away. We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast, but the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you.
3: Don't wait. Visit sono, slash Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. com
1: slash save.
2: Welcome back, everyone. Uh, Joseph Scott Morgan is my special guest. He's the author of a new book entitled Blood Beneath My Feet, The Journey of a Southern Death Investigator. For two decades, uh, our guest this hour, Joseph Scott Morgan, worked as a medical-legal investigator in Atlanta and New Orleans, investigating gruesome scenes Hollywood producers could never even dream up. He's seen the impact death leaves behind both on loved ones and the victims and the people who spend their lives investigating these tragedies. Once again, his website is www.josephscottmorgan.com. Joseph, whatever inspired you to be a, a death investigator and you know, stay around death so, for so many years?
3: Yes, Rob, well, I have uh, a multitude of people that have asked me that question. I even had one guy um, you know, after I've written a book, which is uh, a true memoir mm-hmm. uh, written in a very Southern Gothic voice, you know, he's, you know, he says, uh, you know, you write this memoir and you talk about how dark it was and you talk mm-hmm. about how dangerous it was and and uh, how uh, there was very little redemption in it. Why was it that you chose to be a death investigator? Why did you hang around? And I tell you, still to this day, those are questions that linger in my mind. I still ask myself and explore those questions. Uh, It it really started with me. I was, you know, I was working in New Orleans as a college Mm -hmm. student, and I was working at a hospital. And I happened to be working at the hospital uh, where the local parish uh, or county uh, parish, um, the, the, uh, the, the morgue was under renovation, and they started doing all the autopsies there, and I became friends with the local coroners, investigators, and the, forensics, the forensic pathologists, and de facto I became like the morgue attendant, began ushering in bodies and whatnot, and I found myself absolutely fascinated by it, and began attending autopsies on my own and, and, and learning, and I had a very, you know, I had a very scientific mind, mm-hmm. and it, the scientific nature of everything, solving the puzzle, really appealed to me, and it was as it turned out, it was almost like the siren song for me, you know, drawing me closer and closer to the rocks. Uh, And it it really drew me in at first with, uh, you know, the scientific gymnastics that you had to go through. And plus I saw myself doing something that no one else was equipped to do, at least what I I perceived as emotionally equipped to deal with the things that I would see. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I felt like I was uniquely prepared. And uh, that comes from a very difficult childhood and events that I bore witness to as a child. Um, and I truly thought that I'd convinced myself I'd been prepared my entire life to be able to withstand this, uh, this just withering, uh, you know, uh, onslaught of, of death day in and day out because that's all you see. So I was drawn to it and I really found that I had an aptitude to it became, uh, for it became very successful as a death investigator in, in two major cities in the south and, and uh, really thought that I was somebody, but uh, death had me fooled.
2: How did you as a death investigator after dealing with over 2,000 notifications to families of somebody that they lo- that they love has, has perished, and 7,000 autopsies. How do you deal with this? How do you, you know, how do you, how do you just at the end of the day shake it off? Or do you?
3: I, I don't know that there is shaking off that takes place. Um, you know, I have people, and I know a lot of your audience would be interested in this as well, but, uh, 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 because of uh, many of the discussions that you guys have on the Exxon, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the, uh, I've had many people, you know, say, well, uh, man, you were around so much death, thousands and thousands of dead bodies, you know, for all those years. Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever see a ghost? Yeah. And I, 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 you know, categorically, I would say to people, no, I mm-hmm. never did. I, I, I I didn't have anything to convince me that there were ghosts, but what I was stalked by and plagued by was death, and there was always a perception on my part. And I write about I, I anthropomorphized death in my in my memoir, where death is actually a, a, not a character but a being mm-hmm. that actually existed in my life. I could feel death's breath on my neck all the time. And and in a very Southern Gothic way, you know, in my mind, I could hear death whispering in my ear, you know, as I've been over a, another dead body uh, saying, you know, you see this, this can be you, boy, at any time I right. want it to happen. And, and day after day after day, this redundancy of seeing dead bodies, you become progressively more fearful. But then you're aware that there's really nobody else out there that has the level of training that you have that has the acumen, and that's very arrogant on my part, uh, to do what you're doing. And you you set yourself up in this no-win situation. Well, nobody else can do the job, but yet I'm fearful of doing the job. And it's uh, you're really caught in a trap.
2: How did being a death investigator affect your social life, your family life?
3: <laughs> uh, well, I, I tell you, um, my, uh, he can give you a little slice of life here. My daughters who are teenagers now mm-hmm. they've commented to me. They they say, uh, Daddy, you know when, when we were when we were kids we hated to go out to dinner with you. Matter of fact, we hated eating dinner with you because every time every time we would eat, you would look at us across the table if we were eating some kind of, you know, a ham or a mm-hmm. roast or something or steak and they'd say and I would and I would make the comment to them, Now, chew that up chew that up and not for the regular reasons a parent says this i would actually tell my kids i had a child i had a six-year-old that choked to death on a piece of ham you know and i would and here i am hammering my kids with this information you know and it uh, the problem is this you're always as a death investigator you are always living life and actualizing your life uh through the uh through the the lens of the potential of death yeah you know this this thing that people go about in their life where they never think about death, they ne- unless the hearse drives by. For me, it was daily it was daily that this was happen. I could walk into a place like uh, you know an office park and, and go to conduct business in this place and actually see a woman sitting seated behind a desk. And in my mind, I would flash back to what was referred to in Atlanta as the infamous Buckhead shooting where we had the day trader mm-hmm. that killed like 16 people. And, you know, I can see the ladies, you know, how the ladies sit at desk and they yeah. take their shoes off and they're sitting there in their pantyhose and, mm-hmm. and see the ladies with the bullet holes in their backs. And, you know, and I can visualize that. I can walk into into a shop somewhere and, and imagine somebody coming in and blowing away everybody. You know, it's it, when you're exposed to it, when you're exposed to it day after uh, day after day, you, you you always live your life in this constant fear that something terrible is going to happen, and so you have to fight with that. You have to fight to just to be able to relax when you're in public, uh, because it, you begin to uh, to sense how people perceive you. Mm-hmm. And what's really really sad, Rob, is that many times. Um, uh, when I was struggling with a lot of stuff I was dealing with and seeing, you would go to a party and people would gather around you and they would say, Oh, tell us tell us about your job. We found out that you worked for the coroner for the medical examiner or whatever the case it would be and you would actually think that these people would are caring about yeah. you. They want to know about you. That's not it. You become you become entertainment for them. And then you're just kinda of left holding the bag and all you're left with is a bunch of dead bodies and terrible memories.
2: I understand that there was a time when you were actually locked in a cooler with a pile of decomposing humans
3: <laughs> yeah yeah I, I was mm-hmm. that's that's kind of an interesting story uh when I was in New Orleans, which by the way, for somebody that's that wants to become a death investigator and work in forensics, New Orleans is this fantastic environment to learn in and it's it's a dangerous place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the place it's my hometown uh, you know uh but because it's an international city, it's an international port. You're you're there, and you're exposed to so many other things that other places would not commonly be. You would not commonly be exposed to, so, such as Atlanta. Atlanta is landlocked. yeah in, in in the case with being locked in a cooler with bodies. We had a hurricane that had blown in in the Gulf, and there was a, a barge, uh, what's called a jacket barge, which uh, does uh, maintenance work on oil rigs, tried to beat the storm in, and the thing capsized, and it killed all 16 guys on board. What well, just so happens that our morgue was in a state of disrepair, and we had to... Ran a refrigerated truck and, the, and we, were, we got one and we started storing the bodies in this place as we were working on them. And for about a week, I stayed inside of the trailer with the bodies, working deep into the night, uh, just trying to get the bodies identified. Uh, I won't go into a lot of the gruesome details of the things that we had to do, but suffice it to say, it was total exposure for, you know, five to six days. And this is wow. just one instance of when this happened. But in that instance, when I was in there,
4: mm-hmm.
3: uh, when the, when the dust settled and we were finally done and I was able to go and, uh, and go home, no matter how many showers that I took, uh, a bath that I took, I couldn't get rid of the smell. And, uh, you know, my scientific mind began to kick in and I began to think, uh, you know, what, why is this and it turned out that at a molecular level the odor had had bonded uh in my hair and i literally had to shave oh my gosh. entire body even the hair from my nose wow. and in that the name of that chapter is called the mustache and uh it's it's a kind of a, a symbolic event because i had this you know back in the 80s we all had those huge mustaches oh gosh and yeah i had this beautiful beautiful hair broom you know uh-huh. a lip broom, and and I, I talk about standing at the mirror and, and trimming away this mustache and the hair falling into the sink, and that was very emblematic of, of what death had, you know, was kind of slowly robbing me of, mm-hmm. of my identity and who I was. And and in, in the end, you know, you're just left there, bare bones, and, uh, and, and you, can't, you can't really escape it. And, and death has a residue. It's a sickly, sweet residue that just kind of hangs on you. It doesn't just hang on your physical person. It hangs on your soul you know, uh, throughout all these, you know, throughout this this cumulative time over 20 years.
2: Stand by, my friend. You and I have to take our news break at the bottom of the hour. Exxon Nation, a fascinating hour with a fascinating man. His name is Joseph Scott Morgan. He's the author of Blood Beneath My Feet, The Journey of a Southern Death Investigator. His website is www.josephscottmorgan.com. We'll be back on the other side of the news and some words from our fine sponsors as the X Chronicles Oops. The X Chronicles newspaper comes out one week before Halloween, but that's another spot that we're supposed to do later on. Justice Scott Morgan and I will return on the other side of this news break with words from our fine sponsors as the X Zone continues right here from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. My name is Rob McConnell. Don't go away.
1: Privacy policy in terms conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting rules for text marketing messages. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started
3: school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help.
1: Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with hooked on phonics. My first grader was behind in reading, and this
3: program has made a huge difference. She's now reading above grade level.
2: I use it for my kids nightly reading for school.
3: Text kid to 323232.
2: You're listening to the X Zone Radio Show live and around the world on the Talkstar Radio Network. Xzone Broadcast Network, UK High Definition Radio, Euro High Definition Radio, and Star Cable. Our toll free telephone number worldwide is 1 800 610 7035. Our email address, Xzone at Xzone On MSN Messenger, Xzone Radio TV at Hotmail.com. And our website, www.Xzone TV.com. And welcome back everyone. Uh, The X Chronicles newspaper, which we have been publishing uh, for 20 years now, is going to be available worldwide one week before Halloween. Halloween is traditionally our biggest edition that gets the most coverage around the world. And as you know, not only do we have a worldwide subscription, but people within the media also use the X Chronicles newspaper as a source of guests and a source of experts. So um, let me know if you'd like to get a copy, or you can go online to www.xchronicles-newspaper.com forward slash newspaperstand.htm My guest this hour is Joseph Scott Morgan. He's a death investigator. He's written a book entitled Blood Beneath My Feet, The Journey of a Southern Death Investigator. His website is www josephscottmorgan.com joseph um why did you decide to write your book and is your book based on fact or is it um or is it a little bit of a novel as well
3: uh, actually i had a um there's a new york times best-selling author that read it uh, named grant jerkins mm-hmm. um who is pretty well known uh, he's a fellow georgian um he read my memoir, and uh, he, when he read it, he writes very dark uh, nonfiction, I mean fiction work, and he read it, and um, and after he, he commented, he, he, he emailed me and said, I believe that, um, that you've created a new genre. And he says, uh, I'd have to refer to this, as, the only thing I could really refer to it as is a memoir. Um he said that he had he had never read anything like it because it's not a typical it's not like a true crime book, mm-hmm. but yet there are elements of true crime and it's not <clears throat> it's not a fiction book because it's about my life, but it's written in a very southern gothic voice, and uh it's the only voice that I really have. I come from a family of storytellers and and, you know, when you're talking about death, yeah. uh, it doesn't take too much to kind of light the fire in your brain, particularly if you have uh, real experiences with death. And I, I blended that with stories from my childhood, and it was a catharsis for me. This this is uh, what I would f- refer to as, a, as more of a therapeutic memoir. Grant calls it a memoir. <laughs> um, I, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, just to give you a tiny bit of background, uh, when, uh, I was named, uh, my name, Joseph, I was actually named after a great uncle who was a union leader in the South and he was a homicide victim Wow! and I was named after him. And so I've always felt so that I was born with this kind of legacy of death that was hung around my neck and, um, uh, some very tragic things occurred in my family. Uh, when my parents were married, when they were teenagers, uh, my father, Uh, He tried to get my mother to spontaneously abort by kicking her in the stomach while I was in utero. Uh, When I was about five, my father tried to kill my entire family uh, by shotgunning us. And my grandmother hid me beneath the bed as she called out to Jesus for protection. And so I had that kind of background, you know, coming into this thing when I finally became a death investigator. And, of course, I've got this southern evangelical grandmother whispering in my ear, That she kind of raised me, you know, and she's telling me all the while, you know, uh, baby, God's preparing you for something, you know, and she's she's you know saying this to me over and over again, and so when when I became an adult and came to maturity, it was kind of like the perfect storm. I had this legacy that was hanging over my shoulder. I had this voice in my ear, Mm -hmm. and my life intersected with death investigation, and so these things kind of came together. And I began when uh, – when, uh, as I began to work, I, I was – even though I was a scientist, uh, by practice, I still viewed – I viewed my world through this kind of southern Gothic, evangelically influenced uh, lens. And it put an interesting spin on the way I tell stories, or at least that's what people have told me thus far. And um, so the book – i had people that have said, you know, has this thing been, has someone from Hollywood called you? And I'm like, not, not really. They said, well, it reads like a movie, you know, it reads like a movie. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, you know, I kind of viewed my life that way. And sometimes it seems so surreal. It seemed like it wasn't happening. Well, let me ask you, you let know? me You're, ask you this, speaking
2: yeah. about Hollywood, how, how far different is the, uh, the act of the death investigator from that of, uh, of the CSI program that we watch on TV, uh. You know, Horatio. You know,
4: you know, yeah.
3: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No you, right? problem. Uh, yeah, I get this question a lot. Particularly, you know, I'm a college professor now, and get this this question a lot from students
4: mm-hmm.
3: uh, and from their parents and anyone else that queries me about it. And uh, Hollywood is has done a real disservice to those that work in forensics. And I'll give you an example. Um, a lot of the technology that you see that are that's portrayed in in those uh, in those programs, yeah. uh, it, it, it it's demonstrative of the of this idea that science will solve all of the problems. Well, science doesn't solve all the problems. Science is merely another tool that is given to us in order to for us to exercise in our brain and solve the problem ourselves, just with the data it provides. Uh, and uh, the idea that you know, out in East Egypt, some small police departments is going to have access to. The technology is uh, that they portray on TV is seems outlandish, but you have to understand, you can drive through any trailer park in North America, and they're going to have a satellite dish attached to their home now. Mm-hmm. And so these shows come in
4: to East Egypt,
3: and uh, these you know people in rural locations they just assume that, that you know their local uh, local rural police officers going to know what to do, and they're not. They're absolutely not. The other way this does kind of – does a disservice to forensics is that um, on many of these programs, I've noticed that they'll take one character, and Hollywood's notorious for this, but they'll take one character and make them a composite. Well, in the case of many of these things, they'll have an individual that you know catches the case, investigates the case, collects the evidence, follows up on leads, um, Pursues the bad guy, gets into a gunfight, goes to the lab, processes everything, uh, testifies, gets in a high-speed chase, serves a warrant. And this person is all the uh, – handles, wears all of those hats. And not only when they get to the lab, they do DNA and toxicology, but they're also qualified to do blood spatter, ballistics. They can do it all. And, you know, Mm -hmm. you can go down this litany, and that incorporates about 16 different jobs. And so you have a lot of people that are your supporting cast uh, that are in this environment with you that are kind of toting the line with you. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it, it, really, uh, it really does a disservice, I think, to people in forensics.
2: You know, after talking to you for nearly 40 minutes now, I, I've come to the conclusion that you as a death investigator become the eyes, the ear, the living part that works for the deceased
3: uh right you are uh i've you know there's an old adage uh, among homicide detectives that we speak for those that can no longer speak for themselves mm-hmm. that's even more so that's even more true for us uh as medical legal death investigators because you know I have so many young people that i trained over the years you know they all they come in wide eyed and they think that every case is going to be you know Next to O.J. Simpson. Yeah, but you know, what I got to tell you, you hear about all those cases, but you never hear about the little grandma that dies all alone in the house, and her body goes completely unclaimed. It's it's in the morgue for six months. You try to run down all the leads to try to find a family. They don't. They don't hear about the story of the old man that was kicked out of his house, and he's a chronic alcoholic, and he drowns in a mud puddle because he passes out from a cheap alcohol toxicity yeah. you, know, you don't hear about those stories um and you know it's you i as, I, I don't want to sound uh, uh i don't know haughty in any way but you know i am i was and there's still people out there doing my job uh that i formerly uh performed uh we're we're the only we're the only person to document that this person many times existed
4: Unbelievable. and that's
3: that's a sacred trust, man.
4: It certainly I is. mean, it really
3: is. we become the historian of record, essentially, because no one else is there to mark their passing. And there are a lot of very sad, sad tales that go along with all of this. It's not just these high-profile, salacious kinds of things that we have, uh, you know, that are the drivers behind a lot of what we do. It's, mm-hmm. We're there. It's, it's, uh, it's a task, and it's, it's a hell of a burden to have to bear as well.
2: Now, are you, are you considered to be part of law enforcement uh, as, as a medical death, uh, death investigator? Are you a peace officer? Do you have any police powers? Or do you work under the coroner's jurisdiction?
3: <clears throat> in, in the U.S., it, it's dependent upon the jurisdiction that you, that you work in.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: I'll give you an interesting uh, little quip. Uh, for instance, under the rich common law system, when we adopted that uh, at our founding, uh, as our template, uh, the coroner came along with it. You know, the coroner, people don't realize that the word coroner and the word sheriff are both found, actually, they're in the Magna Carta. That's how far back these offices right. go. And the coroner was actually known as the crowner, the representative of the team. And for um, uh, so the coroner, and you'll find this interesting little tidbit, the coroner in most counties is the only person that has the authority to arrest the sheriff. That's right, yeah. And if uh, the sheriff is involved in some kind of nefarious behavior and they're removed from office, it's not the deputy sheriff that steps into the role of sheriff. It's the coroner. Um, And uh, it all depends on what jurisdiction Hmm. you're in. Some jurisdictions, the medical examiner and the coroner are under the authority to be able to carry firearms. Uh, some never come in contact with a firearm. It all depends on how the state uh, how the state law is is put forth. In both the jurisdictions that that I worked in, uh, I had the ability to uh, carry a firearm. I had to go through firearms training every 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 year twice. And Indiana, uh, for instance, which is really oddball because it's under Napoleonic code, the coroner handled all of the the, the psychiatric committals. Hmm. So I would actually go out and write committal papers in addition to working as a death investigator. Wow. So it's it's a real oddball kind of kind of world. But I like to think that we are free we are free from the demands of law enforcement mm-hmm. uh and we're also free from the demands of say, for instance, the defense side of the house. We're an objective we're an objective entity that works uh through the scientific process. We're not there to argue finer points and how many angels can dance on the head of the pen, we present facts and you seek the truth. And hopefully that will, uh, that will be sufficient. Hopefully that'll
2: be sufficient. Over your many years working as a death investigator, you must have come across some very bizarre cases.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I I, I did. Uh, Robin and, and, you know, um, yeah, just like uh, just like with ice cream, everybody's taste runs the gamut. It mm-hmm. all, and some people would find some things very, very odd, and others they don't find them odd at all. You know, they just kind of they just kind of uh, kind of accept it as as a norm. Uh, but when it comes to death, it's, it's very interesting. Um, you find people. It's it's interesting uh, what kind of positions people will. Uh, place themselves into or, or what kind of positions uh bodies you know wind up in and, and uh everything from uh perpetrators trying to dispose of bodies uh to individuals that are probably involved in um uh, or let's just say for polite company sexual activities they should not probably have been involved in uh-huh. uh to just um uh, just the most bizarre, you know, what some people would think, uh, act of God events that occur. We, you know, I know here in Atlanta, uh, well, I'll say here in Atlanta. I no longer reside in Atlanta. I'm up in the Blue Ridge Mountains now. But uh, we uh, we actually worked a case where a guy's on the way to work, Rob, uh, in his in his car. He's going into work work an evening shift as a computer programmer. And we've got a major four-lane road. And a guy's in a Cessna, of all things. And he has to put the plane down on the roadway, and he crashes right into the roof of the guy's car. You know, here this guy is just driving. And you know, what are the odds you're driving down the highway and a oh plane crashes into your car? You know, uh, when uh, uh, working in the morgue, uh, we actually had a, a ship that was under Liberian registry with a Korean crew coming around the tip of, of South America. Uh, it's, it's, its port of destination was New Orleans. And coming around the tip, uh, the cook... Took exception to something that his first mate had said to him, and the cook took took a meat cleaver and uh, just chopped this guy up into a million pieces. Oh my well, they God. took the the deceased body and they put him. They had these super super deep freeze things on these ships. Mm-hmm. Put his body into the thing and left it in there for the entire rest of the journey to New Orleans. And of course, when they put in, we were. You know, we were the location that received the body. They contacted us and through an interpreter told us they'd had a homicide, and we, along with the Coast Guard, started an investigation. And when we got the guy's body, we got it back to the morgue. Rob, um, you know, for uh, you know, if you've ever cooked a turkey <laughs> and you purchase a turkey, uh, you can't just throw it right in the oven. You no, got to let don't. it thaw out. This guy's body was so frozen, we had to leave it on the autopsy table for over two days, working efficiently just so that we could open it. So, you know, you have all of these bizarre situations that occur.
2: Joseph, you and uh, I have to take our final break. Yeah. Please stand by. Joseph Scott Morgan is our special guest. Explanation, a book that oh, I'm going to get a hold of, that's for sure. Blood Beneath My Feet, The Journey of a Southern Death Investigator. JosephScottMorgan.com is the website. We'll be back on the other side of this break. Don't go away.
4: Georgia,
0: Georgia, the whole, the whole day through, just an old sweet song, keeps Georgia on my mind. Georgia on my mind.
2: And welcome back everyone, our guest this hour, Joseph Scott Morgan, is the author of uh, Blood Beneath My Feet, The Journey of a Southern Death Investigator. Now, his website is www.josephscottmorgan.com. But, Joseph, you also have a couple of Facebook pages that you'd like to uh, let the listeners know about.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, My book uh, has its own Facebook page. It's just simply Blood Beneath My Feet. Uh, Please go in there and like it if you get a chance. I update it uh, pretty regularly. With events that are coming up and whatnot, and mm-hmm. also uh, I, I do the same on my personal uh, Facebook. It's just Joseph Scott Morgan uh, on Facebook, and you can check it out there and uh, be glad to interact with any of your any of your listeners and uh, uh, continue the discussion about uh, about uh, death and dying down here in the South.
2: Now, I, I, what message would you like to leave with the listening audience of the Exxon Nation tonight, Joseph?
3: Wow, uh, I think that it's it, we, we need to remain we need to remain very very mindful. Uh, let me let me start by saying that sure. uh, so much so much uh, ink I think over the years has been splashed on pages and words have been said about family members who lose loved ones, and those are truly tragedies. Um, and it's horrible things that mm-hmm. occur. Um, and uh, I've borne witness to more than more than my share. However, I think what I would like for the listeners to always remember is that somewhere out there, right now, there is a very scared, and lonely, and shattered person working as a death investigator that does not believe that anyone else understands or can identify with what they're seeing and what they're having to do and what they're having to deal with on a daily basis. And, you know, we need to remain remain mindful Mm -hmm. that death is always, uh, kind of breathing down our neck. We need to live every moment, every single moment because it can visit us. Um, it can visit us at any second, live every moment to the fullest. Um, it's, uh, uh, I, I wish I, I'm hoping that, by virtue of the publication of this book, uh, that that an, uh, an open discussion will begin about how we deal with people that are out there that are in my practice. I was diagnosed with PTSD in 2004 uh, and have paid a great price for it uh, for what I saw, what I bore witness to, and I hope that uh, you know that that we can. Uh, Stop assuming that just because you're capable you're academically Mm -hmm. qualified and maybe initially emotionally qualified to handle This burden of death investigation that doesn't mean that you're made to steal that uh, It's a true burden and and people out there need help. They need help with what they're they're seeing But the problem is is that most of us are so stalwart uh, that do this job we're not so inclined to admit our weakness most of the time and at some point in time i had to admit my weakness admit that i wasn't made of steel that um i wasn't created in this world to be around decomposing bodies i don't think anybody is
2: Joseph, and, I want to thank you ever so much. I'm sorry, my friend. We, we're, we're going to have to have you back on to further this discussion because oh, yeah, I I, I agree with you, my friend, that we have to talk about this and give credit where credit is due. I know as a police officer, you guys have earned the respect of every law enforcement officer that has ever had the pleasure of working with you. Joseph, take care of yourself. Exonation. Joseph Scott Morgan has been my guest www.josephscotmorgan.com. I'll be back after the news at six and a half minutes past the hour. Don't go away.
0: We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast while the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you.